0: welcome to Pass Pack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our destination is a high-yield review of general surgery that's based on the EOR topic blueprint. Sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, it's Becca. Today, like other days, we're gonna do an in-depth overview with case vignettes and wrap up at the end with our rapid review. As usual, we'll be going in descending order of the content covered on the EOR, starting with GI and nutrition, which makes up 50% of the EOR. First, I wanna start with a few pointers about studying for this EOR. Because there is such a heavy focus on GI and nutrition, I recommend doing as many questions as you can that cover GI on Roche Review or Smarty Pants if you have trouble finding specific question banks dedicated to general surgery. Don't necessarily focus on surgical interventions only and techniques only, but more so indications for a certain general or common procedure, pre-op, post-op, historical presentations of surgical emergencies, and so on. Look at the bigger picture and not just the surgery itself. That being said, let's start with the first vignette. Your adult female patient with a history of cirrhosis arrives to the ER with fever, chills, and abdominal pain. Physical exam reveals ascites with shifting dullness. Culture of the acidic fluid reveals granulocyte count over 500 and neutrophil count over 250. Given your top differential, what is your initial treatment option? Immediate IV cefotaxime or a third gen cephalosporin will be your first line treatment for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. This is an acute bacterial infection of ascites, That usually occurs in patients who have advanced stages of liver disease like cirrhosis. The pathogenesis behind this infection begins with portal hypertension, and that will lead to bowel edema that allows the bacteria to migrate from the GI tract into the ascites. This pathogenesis can probably lead you to the most common offending organism in this diagnosis, which is E. coli. You should treat empirically with third-gen cephalosporin prior to obtaining the culture results. Your patient with a history of atrial fibrillation presents with acute abdominal pain that is out of proportion to his exam. Based on the clinical picture, what is the gold standard for diagnosing the suspected embolic cause of his acute pain? Mesenteric angiography is the gold standard for a patient with suspected mesenteric ischemia or infarction. In patients with a history of atrial fibrillation who present with sudden onset of abdominal pain out of proportion of their exam immediately suspect acute mesenteric ischemia. The most common cause of acute mesenteric ischemia is from an embolism, which is why atrial fibrillation is such a high risk factor. Abdominal x-ray may show thumb printing due to the submucosal bleeding. These patients require immediate surgical evaluation for emergent revascularization and or resection of the necrotic bowel if present. Your patient is a 55-year-old male with a history of chronic alcohol use who presents with intermittent abdominal pain that radiates to his back with steatorrhea. Physical exam reveals mild jaundice and diffuse abdominal tenderness. Labs reveal normal amylase and lipase, and the CT of the abdomen shows pancreatic calcifications. What diagnosis do you most suspect? Chronic pancreatitis. This is due to chronic excessive alcohol use about 90% of the time and can lead to necrosis and fibrosis of the pancreas, which decreases its overall function resulting in a normal or mild elevation of the pancreatic enzymes. The initial step in treating is abstaining from alcohol. The patient should be given replacement pancreatic enzymes pain management, and consider surgery as a last measure if they need denervation, decompression, or even resection. These patients are at an increased risk for pancreatic carcinoma and may present with diabetes due to the destruction of the beta and alpha cells. While working in the ER, your 50-year-old male patient with a 30-pack year history presents with epigastric pain nausea, and a darkened color to his urine. Physical reveals a thin patient with generalized weakness and a palpable non-tender mass in the right costal margin, and a palpable fixed, hard, left supraclavicular lymph node. What diagnosis do you most suspect at this time? Pancreatic carcinoma. This is a highly lethal cancer and remains the fourth cause of cancer-related death in the U.S., with the most common also unfortunately carrying the worst prognosis, which is ductal adenocarcinoma. You should suspect this diagnosis in a patient with a family history of pancreatic cancer or other risk factors such as cigarette smoking. Patients can present with symptoms like we saw in the vignette or even just painless jaundice. Corvassier's sign is a high-yield physical finding in which you can palpate a distended, non-tender gallbladder at the right costal margins. Other high yield findings include the presence of Virchow's node, which is a palpable left supraclavicular lymph node, Sister Mary Joseph sign, which is a palpable non-tender nodule under the umbilicus, and even Trousseau syndrome, which is the migratory thrombophlebitis secondary to this hypercoagulable state that accompanies many malignancies. Metastases are most commonly found in the liver but can also quickly travel to the peritoneum and lungs. The first line imaging for identification is CT, but if the patient has jaundice or high suspicion for pancreatic cancer, then transabdominal ultrasound is preferred first. Diagnosis and staging can be done with the contrast enhanced CT, and tumor markers to watch in this are CA19 9. The only potential curative modality in these patients is complete surgical resection, such as doing a Whipple, which is the pancreaticoduodenectomy. But most commonly, patients present with unresectable disease at the time of diagnosis, which leads to needing chemo and or radiation, which is another reason why it is so deadly. Your 30-year-old male patient with a BMI of 30 presents with chronic pain at the upper midline region of his buttocks. Physical reveals a painful, fluctuant area at the sacrococcygeal cleft. What should be done for acute management at this time? Incision and drainage should be done for the acute presentation of a pilonidal abscess. The only definitive treatment is surgical resection of all the sinus tracts present. If they're asymptomatic and no signs of infection, you can manage these patients with education for maintaining hygiene and monitor closely for signs and symptoms of developing infection. What acute complication is most associated with the most common bariatric surgery in the United States? (music) Ruin Y gastric bypass is the most common bariatric surgery which can lead to the complication of dumping syndrome. Dumping syndrome can present with severe nausea, abdominal pain, and lightheadedness about 30 minutes after the initiation of a normal diet following surgery. The most common late complication in a Roux-en-Y is anemia, especially megaloblastic, due to the B12 deficiency. But deficiencies can be seen in all water and fat-soluble vitamins and minerals like iron. Management consists of lifelong micronutrient supplementation. Your patient is a 40-year-old G2P2 female with a BMI of 38 who presents to the ER due to intermittent cramping, right upper quadrant pain that radiates to the inferior right scapula. History reveals no sick contacts, but she believes she might have gotten food poisoning from eating at a fast food restaurant right before the pain began. Physical exam is unremarkable and her labs are also unremarkable right now. What diagnosis do you most suspect? symptomatic cholelithiasis, which is also known as biliary colic. This is most commonly seen with a series of F-words, fertile female patients in their 40s with a high BMI following a fatty meal. Differentiate from cholelithiasis, which presents similarly, though more severely, with elevated LFTs, ALKFOS, and typically jaundice. Cholecystitis, which is when a blocked stone in the cystic duct leads to inflammation and infection, usually presents as our patient did. However, there will be steady and unremitting right upper quadrant pain in addition to fever. High-yield findings for these patients will also be a positive Murphy sign with ultrasound compression. Once a patient develops cholangitis, you will see even more severe presentation with Charcot's triad, which is the right upper quadrant, pain, jaundice, and fever, or Reynolds pentad, which is the same but with hypotension and altered mental status, as we've discussed in a few episodes before. For all of your gallbladder differentials, the first-line imaging is going to be with ultrasound, and ERCP is going to be the gold standard for diagnostic and therapeutic intervention, with the exception of cholecystitis, which is preferably confirmed using a HIDA scan. That would reveal the gallbladder not lighting up due to the failure of filling from the obstruction. What should be suspected in a patient with chronic diarrhea and abdominal pain that relieves with defecation? irritable bowel syndrome. This is due to an intestinal motility disorder and can lead to a change in bowel habits with no identifiable organic cause. This can present with symptoms of constipation, diarrhea, or a mixed presentation of both. This is a diagnosis of exclusion and can be supported by using the Rome 3 diagnostic criteria. Management will depend on predominating symptoms either the pain, constipation, or diarrhea. Remember, conservative lifestyle modifications like FODMAP diet initiation or behavioral changes are typically started first. For pain, you can try an antispasmodic like dicyclamine, but SSRIs, TCA's, and even motility-reducing antibiotics can also be considered. Constipation usually responds to osmotic laxatives and lubiprostone and linaclotide. Diarrhea can be improved with antidiarrheals like loperamide, which is also known as Imodium, and that's a peripheral opioid antagonist. You can also use bile acid sequestrants and even serotonin-3 receptor antagonists like alosetron, which is also approved. You might be wondering, why am I talking about IBS in general surgery? You have to know the differentials for when surgery is indicated and when it's not. So in a patient that presents this way and you're ruling out things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or another potential abdominal presentation that warrants surgery, you have to know how to differentiate these things and also treat. Again, that's why we talked about earlier not focusing on things that require surgery only, but kind of looking at the big picture of all of your differentials. Your patient is a 66-year-old female who presents with acute lower left quadrant pain, fever, nausea, and vomiting. Physical exam is notable for rebound tenderness in the left lower quadrant with guarding and abdominal rigidity. Abdominopelvic CTA shows colonic bowel wall thickening over 4 millimeters with fat stranding and colonic pouching. With exception to fever and slight tachycardia, vitals are otherwise normal, and she appears hemodynamically stable. What is the treatment recommended for this patient at this time? For acute, uncomplicated diverticulitis, you can prescribe a short course of antibiotics like Piptazo inpatient, or if there's a really, really mild presentation, you might consider a 7 to 10 day course of. PO ciprofloxacin with metronidazole. Patients should be instructed to decrease their fiber intake during the acute period and after the resolution of the diverticulitis, you should instruct them to begin long-term increased fiber intake. If the patient has complicated diverticulitis that presents severe, persistent symptoms despite antibiotics or there's hemodynamic compromise, initiate bowel rest immediately and consider surgery for possible treatment of a perforation or abscess. Remember, in diverticulitis, colonoscopy is contraindicated indicated. While working on your GI surgical rotation, you are consulted to evaluate a 45-year-old male patient who presented with persistent abdominal pain, history of progressive dysphagia, and weight loss. History reveals progressive early satiety and recurrent postprandial vomiting. You are able to palpate a left supraclavicular node and a fixed hardened mass that begins at the epigastrium and can be palpated all the way deep to the left anterior costal margin. His skin exam reveals acanthosis nigricans. What should you do to establish your top differential? EGD with biopsy, which is upper endoscopy. Histology for gastric carcinoma commonly shows signet ring cells. 95% of gastric carcinomas are adenocarcinomas, and the risks include H. pylori infections, smoking, and even excessive salt intake. As with pancreatic cancers and other mets to the lymph nodes, You might palpate Virchow's node or other palpable lymph nodes. Gastric carcinoma is associated with perineoplastic syndromes like acanthosis nigricans, seborrheic keratosis, and hypercoagulability, resulting in that trisous migratory thrombophlebitis. Differentiate this with pancreatic carcinoma with historical findings of dysphagia and early satiety, plus or minus the presence of linitis plastica, which is that rigidity of the stomach from the malignancy. Because physical exam might appear similar to pancreatic carcinoma, if the patient has jaundice... Your suspicions should move more towards pancreatic carcinoma. Gastric carcinomas are associated with high-yield Mets to the ovary, known as Krukenberg's tumor. Surgery is the only curative option in gastric carcinomas, but once hepatic artery or other vasculature is infiltrated, the malignancy is considered unresectable. Your patient is a 23-year-old female who presents with scant hematemesis following a night of excessive vomiting after going to a party. Considering her stability, EGD is performed following acquisition of IV access and visualization of longitudinal non-penetrating mucosal tears are visualized at the GE junction. Should bleeding persist, what treatment options should be considered? While this condition is normally self-limited, if the tear does not heal spontaneously, consider endoscopic hemostatic therapy like epinephrine and or cauterization plus acid suppression. You can also give patients with Weiss tears and diametics to prevent rebleeding. and most cases are going to resolve by 72 hours. Regardless of etiology for an upper GI bleed, ensure the patient is stable and get your IV access right away. Your 57-year-old patient with a past medical history of hepatitis C arrives to the ER due to rapid accumulating ascites. Physical also reveals hepatomegaly. He has no fever and aspiration shows sanguineous fluid. What tumor marker do you suspect is elevated in this patient? (music) AFP or alpha-fetal protein is a nonspecific, but is the tumor marker associated with hepatocellular carcinoma. The most common cause of hepatocellular carcinoma is cirrhosis of all etiologies, but most commonly from viral hepatitis, including B and C, with alcoholic cirrhosis trailing right behind. Hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common primary malignancy of the liver, but this is rare in the US still, and we usually see liver malignancy as a result from distant metastases. Your patient is a 22-year-old male presenting with pain in the left lower quadrant following progressive worsening loose stools intermixed with mucus and blood. He has decreased bowel sounds, fever, tachycardia, and abdominal distention. Abdominal radiograph is notable for colonic dilation, over 6 centimeters, and labs show neutrophilic leukocytosis. His blood pressure is dropping and he's becoming increasingly altered. What is the first step in treating this patient? <music> Fluid resuscitation and decompression of the colon with a bowel rest and nasogastric tube. Emergent surgical consult is required at admission in a patient with suspected toxic megacolon, which is life-threatening complication of ulcerative colitis. You should suspect this in a patient with a history or clinical presentation of ulcerative colitis who presents hemodynamically unstable and or has severe bloody diarrhea that is resistant to treatment. In a patient with hypotension, the first line includes fluid resuscitation. Once medically stable, colectomy is considered curative for ulcerative colitis. Of course, it's always important to note if the patient is at risk of losing their airway, you need to address that first. Your patient with a history of alcoholic liver disease presents with weakness, fatigue, and weight loss. Physical reveals spider angiomas, palmar erythema, and muscle atrophy. Hepatomegaly and ascites are noted as well. What medication should be provided to the patient to reverse the sodium retention and conserve potassium to diurese is ascites. Spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist, and you can also advise salt restriction and consider a paracentesis. This patient has signs and symptoms of cirrhosis, which is most commonly caused by alcoholic liver disease in the United States, and can present with signs and symptoms of portal hypertension, ascites, hepatorenal syndrome, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and or hepatocellular carcinoma. Your two-month-old patient presents with her parents due to non-bilious projectile vomiting immediately after eating with persistent signs of hunger. There is a small palpable mass at the lateral edge of her rectus abdominis and ultrasound reveals a thickened pyloric muscle. What would you suspect her ABG to show? metabolic alkalosis, secondary to hypochloremia and hypokalemia due to that progressive vomiting. The diagnosis we have here is pyloric stenosis, which is most commonly idiopathic and should be suspected in any young infant with non-bilious projectile vomiting, especially after eating. Because the pyloric sphincter is thickened, there's not going to be any bile in the vomit, because it's not gonna be able to get through from the duodenum, just like food can't get through from the stomach. Treatment should focus on electrolyte imbalances first with subsequent pyloromyomectomy. We will touch on a lot more high yields for GI in the rapid review, but let's move on to pre-op and post-op care, which make up 12% of the EOR. Your patient has a history of coronary artery disease and is a possible surgical candidate for an elective procedure. 12-lead EKG is normal, but what should be done prior to surgery to rule out possible cardiac ischemia? (music) Stress Test A nuclear stress test can be done prior to non-cardiac operations for those with active cardiac comorbidities or risk factors. In patients with significant coronary artery disease, including unstable angina, coronary revascularization should be performed prior to any non-cardiac operations and elective surgeries should be avoided and patients with a history of prior cardiac infarct, there is a 5-10% to 10% increased risk for post-operative MI. Your patient is a 45-year-old male with past medical history of hypertension and coronary artery disease who presents to the ER with fatigue, shortness of breath, and dizziness on and off for a few weeks that has progressed and has now been persistent for the past two days with a feeling of fluttering and skipping heartbeat. EKG reveals irregularly irregular rhythm with no identifiable P waves. His vitals are within normal limits at this time, and rate control is achieved with DLTism. What additional diagnostic imaging is warranted before additional procedures are pursued? (music) Echocardiogram is indicated for patients with AFib in order to rule out valvular heart disease and evaluate heart size, function, and possible identification of a thrombus. TEE, or transesophageal echocardiogram, is additionally required if the patient has been in AFib over 48 hours, and a CHADVASc score should be used to determine risk of anticoagulation versus stroke in a patient with AFib. If the patient presents with paroxysmal AFib within 48 hours of onset, you can consider TEE to rule out the thrombus and perform a cardioversion at presentation. If warranted by CHADVASc, anticoagulation should be onboarded for at least 21 days before scheduling the patient for a synchronized cardioversion. However, if the patient presents unstable, the first-line treatment is cardioversion. Remember, like I always say, unstable gets the cable. Your patient with a past medical history of diabetes and advanced renal failure is admitted inpatient after a surgical amputation and revascularization of his lower extremities. While running post op rounds, you note new onset muscle weakness and flaccid paralysis in his upper extremities. Telemetry monitoring shows bradycardia with peaked ST elevations. What electrolyte abnormality do you most suspect? Hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is the most dangerous acute electrolyte abnormality. Patients with renal failure in particular are at increased risk, especially with the administration of a potassium-sparing diuretic like spironolactone. Other causes of post-op hyperkalemia include malpositioning leading to rhabdomyolysis, vascular procedures in the setting of tissue ischemia, hypovolemia, acidosis, and those are just a few. Additionally, patients may develop post-op hyperkalemia during or within 24 hours of stopping intravascular fluids due to fluid shifting. In patients with hyperkalemia and the setting of renal failure or acidosis, if they're symptomatic or if they have EKG changes, or even if they're asymptomatic with extreme elevations of potassium, like over 6.5, urgent treatment is indicated. However, if there is a strangely isolated elevated potassium in an asymptomatic and extremely low-risk patient, consider repeating that blood work to rule out a hemolyzed sample due to lab or retrieval error if urgent treatment is indicated administer iv calcium gluconate which will stabilize the myocardial conduction remember this has no effect on the actual potassium level itself it's just going to stabilize that conduction to actually decrease the potassium you need to give insulin plus minus glucose to keep from bottoming out to shift that potassium back into the cells from the excess extracellular potassium. If the patient has life-threatening hyperkalemia and is not responding to medication or advanced renal failure is present, then you need to perform hemodialysis. If urgent treatment isn't indicated, you might be able to achieve lowering total body potassium by initiating exchange resin like k loop diuretics in those with alright renal function, and stopping all potassium-containing fluids like lactated ringers, discontinuing any potassium-sparing diuretics, or other medications that can raise serum potassium like ACEs and ARBs and initiate that low-sodium diet. When we think about hypokalemia following surgery, which is actually the most common electrolyte abnormality, the number one complication to remember for that one is the development of post-op ileus. On post-op day one, following a long surgery, your patient develops extreme nausea and recurrent vomiting. Should the post-op nausea and vomiting remain severe and uncontrolled, what acid-based complication is she at risk for? metabolic alkalosis. When you vomit out all your stomach acid, you will have that overall alkalotic state. Post-op nausea and vomiting is common on post-op day one, especially in the history of easy GI upset like those with motion sickness or chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. Prior to discharge, nausea and vomiting should be controlled, which can usually be accomplished with antiemetics like scopolamine, odansetron, etc. Following a prolonged surgery, your 65-year-old patient with a BMI of 30 develops unilateral lower leg edema with overlying warmth, tenderness, and calf pain on passive dorsiflexion. What is the preferred first-line imaging modality to evaluate for your top differential? (music) Ultrasound with Doppler with compression is preferred modality for those with a high pretest probability of DVT using the Wells criteria. If there is low suspicion for DVT, Screening can be done with D-dimer, but any suspicion at all should indicate ultrasound. If asked for the gold standard modality, the answer would be venography. However, this is invasive and generally not performed. One-fourth of patients without VTE prophylaxis will develop DVT postoperatively. Proximal DVT can occur in the peripheral, femoral, or iliac veins, leading to signs affecting the entire limb versus an isolated distal DVT, which might only be symptomatic below the knee. The diagnosis should be suspected in a patient with a history of immobilization, recent surgery, prior VTE events or thromboembolic events, malignancy, increased estrogen therapy like OCPs or HRT, or pregnancy in postpartum patients. High-yield physical maneuvers include Homans sign, which is that calf pain with passive dorsiflexion. However, the absence of this does not rule out a DVT. Prophylaxis for DVT includes pre-op low molecular weight heparin or low-dose Unfractionated heparin, intraoperative sequential compression devices like SKIDs or intermittent pneumatic compression devices, early ambulation postoperatively, and the use of compression stockings can decrease the risk of DVT. In patients with confirmed proximal DVT, treatment with anticoagulation is warranted. In those with distal DVTs, only treat symptomatic patients if the bleeding risk is low. In patients with a high risk of bleeding, that actually leads to a contraindication to give anticoagulants like an active bleed including a GI bleed, platelet count less than 50,000, major trauma or a history of intracranial bleeding, use of an IVC filter over anticoagulation should be utilized. Your 75-year-old male patient is four hours status post anorectal surgery and has been unable to urinate. Ultrasound of the bladder detects 600 milliliters of retained urine. After his indwelling catheter removal, there is still 300 milliliters retention. What should be done at this time? Minute catheterization. Patients at risk of post op urinary retention are older men with a history of urinary retention, neurological diseases, pelvic or anal rectal surgery, prolonged anesthesia, etc. There will typically be symptoms related to the bladder fullness leading to lower abdominal discomfort. First line and preferred method of diagnosis is with bladder ultrasound, and bladder cath should be done if still unable to void four hours post op and there's 600 or more milliliters of retained urine visualized on ultrasound. You can leave the catheter in place if it drains 400 or more milliliters and then remove it before discharge or switch to intermittent catheterization if there is still retention less than 600 milliliters. And a patient with operations over three hours or at high risk due to the amount of IV fluid they're getting, prophylactic catheterization should be done. Your diabetic patient returns to the clinic postoperatively after an open reduction internal fixation in his tibia 12 days ago. He is complaining of increased pain and you visualize purulent drainage through his incision site and the setting of overlying erythema and localized warmth. What is the first line treatment for your top differential? <music> Utilize primary source control by removing the sutures and inspecting the suture site for a likely SSI or surgical site infection. Pain is the most sensitive indicator for SSI, especially when considering risk factors for diabetes, immunosuppression, smoking, etc. While similar, don't confuse SSI with wound dehiscence, which results in that partial or total disruption of an operative wound. The most important risk factor for this is inadequate closure. All right, we'll get into more pre-op, post-op later, but let's keep it moving with cardio, which accounts for 9% of the EOR. Your 43-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension presents with sudden knife-like pain immediately behind his sternum, which radiates all the way to his back. Physical reveals decrescendo murmur along his right sternal border. Pulse pressure is widened, and you know asymmetry of both pulse strength and blood pressure. What imaging modality will confirm your suspected top differential? CT angiogram is the confirmatory imaging of choice for thoracic aortic dissection. Additionally, this can be used to identify between ascending versus descending origin. CTA will reveal dissection by visualizing that intimal flap that separates the true aortic lumen from the false lumen. Other modalities that are typically quicker and may be used initially while waiting on CTA includes chest x-ray, which might reveal that widened mediastinum and even transesophageal ultrasound. Hypertension is the most important risk factor for this life-threatening cardiac differential. Other risk factors to remember are collagen disorders like Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Turner syndrome, bicuspid aortic valve, pregnancy, and family history of thoracic aortic dissection. In a patient found to have Stanford type A, and remember A means ascending thoracic aortic dissection, this is a surgical emergency due to that risk of aortic regurgitation, cardiac tamponade, frank rupture, stroke, MI, and death. Descending dissections, which are Stanford type B, can be treated with blood pressure control, image surveillance, and or endovascular repair. Blood pressure should be reduced to the lowest tolerable level, and heart rate should also be reduced. You can use IV beta blockers for rate control first, and then nitroprusside for the blood pressure reduction after. Don't forget pain control management as well. Your 72-year-old male patient with a 40-pack year history and BMI of 33 arrives to the ER due to a dull pain in his lower extremities with crusting and weeping of irregularly bordered ulcerations on his medial malleoli. Physical reveals the ulcer wound bed is beefy, red, granulated, and there is surrounding hyperpigmentation. Interior shins also exhibit hyperpigmentation with overlying dermatitis. What diagnosis do you suspect? This patient has venous stasis ulcers and stasis dermatitis from chronic venous insufficiency. These signs and symptoms should make you suspicious of venous involvement more than arterial involvement, and in venous ulcers, borders will be typically irregular and can occur either medial or lateral malleoli, but medial is more common. Other symptoms of chronic venous insufficiency can include paritis, edema, history of varicose veins, or other venothromboembolic events. Diagnosis is clinical, but ultrasound should be ordered to rule out DVT, or if you have very low suspicion, you can get a D-dimer. Treatment for venous insufficiency is with compression first and foremost, with those compression socks or stockings. Also, leg elevation and exercises should be advised. Wound care management as needed for venous ulcers should also be implemented along with compressive stockings and bandages. In those with stasis dermatitis, topical medium potency corticosteroids like triamcinolone cream can be beneficial. In arterial ulcers from peripheral arterial disease or peripheral vascular disease, ulcer borders are typically regular and are rolled, and they look punched out, and they're most commonly located on the lateral malleoli and the tops of the feet and toes. There will also be signs and symptoms more consistent with peripheral arterial disease, such as lower extremity pallor and claudication. Had the patient had peripheral arterial disease, an ankle brachial index can be utilized to compare the upper and lower extremity blood pressures using that Doppler ultrasound flow. An ABI less than 0.9 indicates peripheral arterial disease and less than 0.4 indicates that limb-threatening ischemia. In a patient with diabetes especially, be wary of the false ABI readings due to calcified arteries. If asked for the gold standard diagnostic modality for peripheral arterial disease, the answer is going to be angiography. We'll touch on more cardio high yield in our rapid review at the end. Now let's move on to endocrine, which makes up 8% of the general surgery EUR. Your <music> 33-year-old female patient presents with an unintentional weight loss, increased anxiety, and diarrhea. She states she is feeling constantly hot and sweaty, jittery, and is tremulous all the time now. Physical reveals proptosis, brittle nails, and tachycardia. Labs show a low TSH and high T3, T4. Aside from the elevated heart rate, your patient's vitals are stable and she does not appear hemodynamically compromised. What treatment do you recommend for this patient's symptoms? Symptoms are reduced by reducing adrenergic tone, and that is achieved using beta blockers like atenolol. To treat the disease itself, antithyroid drugs like methimazole or propylthiouracil should be started in patients with hyperthyroidism. In those with multinodular goiter or thyroid tumor leading to hypothyroidism, consider radioactive iodine ablation in an adult patient that is non-pregnant without a suspicious nodule. If any of those factors do exist or the patient is generally non-compliant or refractory to medications, surgical thyroidectomy should be performed. In surgery, be sure to avoid damaging the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which can lead to that hoarse voice if unilateral nerve damage occurs, but can occlude the airway from vocal cord paralysis if both are damaged. In addition to the initial TSH and T4 labs, ultrasound is useful for visualization of nodules, cysts, and radioactive iodine uptake testing can be used to determine the underlying etiology of hyperthyroidism, such as Graves' disease or thyrotoxicosis with diffuse uptake, multinodule goiter with heterogeneous uptake, or a hot nodule, and hyper-functioning adenoma. But ensure the patient is not pregnant in the stem before choosing that answer. The most common cause of hyperthyroidism is Graves' disease, which is due to the autoimmune anti-thyrotropin antibodies that stimulate the TSH receptors, leading to that hyperactive synthesis and secretion of thyroxine from the thyroid. The negative feedback loop of the elevated thyroid hormones will cause TSH to be low, but because the receptors are constantly turned on by this autoimmunity, the thyroid will continue to produce and secrete thyroxine, leading to this hyperactive metabolic state, which results in a lot of the symptoms we see. Whenever you see a stem that has a female with proptosis or exophthalmos, you should have a high suspicion that the answer is going to have something to do with primary hyperthyroidism. Other findings that might be included in the stem include irritability, increased appetite, hyperreflexia, pretibial, myxedema, and an enlarged thyroid. Ensure the patient is hemodynamically stable, and if they came into the ER with fever, weakness, restlessness, confusion, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, jaundice, or is hemodynamically compromised, you should be highly suspicious of a thyroid storm, which is a life-threatening acute hyperthyroidism, usually resulting from untreated or undertreated hyperthyroidism, regardless of the etiology. Your 42-year-old female patient presents with dysphagia and progressive hoarseness. Physical exam reveals palpable unilateral thyroid nodule. Ultrasound shows hypoechoic mass with irregular margins and microcalcifications that is 2 centimeters tall and 1 centimeter wide. FNA reveals somoma bodies following a cold thyroid uptake scan. What is your top differential? <music> Papillary thyroid carcinoma. This is the most common and least aggressive carcinoma of the thyroid. Suspect this in a patient with risk factors including assigned female at birth, between 40 to 60 years old, history of radiation to the head and neck, or familial tumor syndromes like MIN2. Ultrasound is the initial imaging of choice for a patient with a palpable thyroid nodule. Suspicious findings were outlined in our STEM, especially when that nodule is taller over wide. In the setting of a normal or elevated TSH, a thyroid scan usually reveals a cold or non functioning nodule, and that indicates the need for a fine needle aspiration. If the TSH is decreased, then perform radionucleotide thyroid scan to evaluate for any functioning. Surgical resection for papillary thyroid carcinoma is the preferred treatment with either total thyroidectomy or a thyroid lobectomy. Radioiodine therapy can be considered for non-surgical candidates. High yield surgical complications for any surgical resection of the thyroid includes hypocalcemia from iatrogenic parathyroidectomy in the process of resecting that tumor and or recurrent laryngeal injury as we have already discussed. All right, let's move on to our last vignette section before our mixed rapid review, which will be one vignette each for dermatology, neurology, and urology slash renal, which each make up 5% of the EOR. We'll do the remaining sections of hematology, pulmonology, and even a little bit of GYN in our rapid review at the end. Your patient is a 43-year-old female who presents with a paritic growing mole on the left calf that is asymmetrical with irregular borders, mixed colors of black and brown, and measures about 7 millimeters in diameter. What is the preferred diagnostic and treatment modality for the suspected diagnosis? (music) Excisional biopsy is preferred when you find a lesion that's highly suspicious of melanoma due to its deadly prognosis. While melanoma is the least common skin cancer, it carries the highest mortality if missed. If the melanoma is over 1 millimeter thick wide excision with a two centimeter margin is indicated, whereas melanomas less than one millimeter thick are indicated to have one centimeter margins. Depth will be your most important prognostic factor in melanoma, which is why if excisional biopsy is not performed or is even an answer choice, the next option for biopsy should be a punch biopsy. If both are included in the answer choices, the likely answer is going to be excisional. The ABCDEs of melanoma are useful when both evaluating suspicious nevi and also educating your patients when discussing how to perform self skin exams. This acronym stands for asymmetry, borders, irregular, colors, mixed, diameter, over six millimeters or about the diameter of a pencil eraser, and evolving or growing. Your 61 year old female patient with past medical history of polycystic kidney disease and 15. Pac-Your History presents the ER with severe headache that began suddenly while she was running this morning and has been unrelenting. Physical reveals a stiff neck and she is extremely sensitive to the light. She denies any head trauma or known cause. What diagnostic study should be pursued first? Non-contrast CT of the head. In a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, non-contrast CT should be used to diagnose which will reveal blood that involves the sulci. If the CT is non-diagnostic and you still have high suspicion of subarachnoid hemorrhage, lumbar puncture should be performed, which will reveal xanthochromia, which is that yellowish CSF due to the hemoglobin degradation products, and they'll have an increased opening pressure due to that high intracranial pressure. The most common cause of subarachnoid hemorrhage is a ruptured saccular or buried aneurysm, and the most common location for this is at the bifurcation sites of the Circle of Willis most commonly that anterior communicating artery. Patients will classically present with the quote-unquote worst headache of their life that is non-traumatic in nature. There can be occasionally a mention of comorbid polycystic kidney disease, Turner syndrome, or even cocaine use, which are all risk factors for intracranial aneurysms and rupture. These patients should be given nimodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker that will prevent vasospasm and decrease hypertension, which are both proven to reduce mortality. Do not reduce blood pressure too much or you risk cerebral hypoperfusion. Additionally, the patient should be considered for surgical management like clipping or occluding the aneurysms or even embolization or resection of any AV malformations. Subarachnoid hemorrhages should be differentiated from other high-yield intracranial hemorrhages like epidural hematoma and subdural hematoma which are both usually associated with a traumatic etiology the presentation of epidural hematoma is unique due to the lucid interval that is sandwiched between that initial loss of consciousness following the trauma to the temporal bone and middle meningeal artery and then the progressive neurological deterioration after that lucid interval. Non-contrast CT will reveal a lens-shaped or lemon-shaped pattern due to that hemorrhage being contained within the suture lines. Alternatively, subdural hematoma, which is more common than epidural hematoma, will uniquely present after a traumatic injury or sometimes a chronic due to a non-traumatic or slow bleed. Patients are usually older or alcoholics a history of a recent fall that have a progressive headache with slow neurological deterioration due to that rupture of the bridging veins. Non-contrast CT will show a crescent-shaped or banana appearance of the bleed due to the extensions beyond the suture lines. I recommend being able to differentiate all of these if you were just given an image of the CT. Your 23-year-old patient presents with severe left lower flank pain that is radiating to the groin, nausea, and vomiting. Helical CT scan without contrast. Confirmed suspected diagnosis of nephrolithiasis with acute ureter obstruction at the ureto junction. The obstructive stone measures 8.2 millimeters. What is the treatment of choice? <music> Lithotripsy for stones over eight millimeters or emergent decompression in patients that are high risk, like those with solitary kidney, complete obstruction, or even sepsis should be initiated. And patients with non-obstructive stones that are less than five millimeters in diameter, discharge home with analgesics, and follow-up outpatient as these will likely pass spontaneously. Urologic consultation with possible admission should be considered if any complicating features are present, such as pain that is uncontrolled, fever, history of transplant, solitary kidney, or any significant comorbidities. All right, we have made it to our rapid review where we will cover a mix of all of these sections, plus some high yields from topics we haven't covered, including hematology, pulmonology, and some OBGYN. What is the most common underlying condition, increasing risk for atrial fibrillation? Hypertension and coronary artery disease. Other risk factors include binge drinking like holiday heart, age, and rheumatic heart disease. What are surgical indications for peptic ulcer disease? Perforation, ulcer over three centimeters, refractory ulcers, upper GI bleeding, or gastric outlet obstruction. What should you suspect in a teenage male presenting with scrotal pain and swelling with an absent cremasteric reflex? Testicular torsion What are the six Ps for acute arterial occlusion? Paresthesia, pallor, pain, pulselessness, paralysis, and poikulothermia. Paralysis and loss of sensation are both late findings along with gangrene. What electrolyte disorder should be suspected in a patient with fatigue, diffuse myalgias, abdominal pain with GI upset, anxiety and hallucinations. Hypercalcemia. The memory aid to remember is aching bones, renal stones, abdominal moans, and psychic overtones. What are the features of a second degree or partial thickness burn? Tendered, blistered, and erythematous skin. In first degree, the presentation may be similar, but the erythema will blanch with pressure and no blisters will be present. Third degree is typically non-tender with burned, tough, leathery skin. And fourth degree should be diagnosed when the burn extends into the muscle and bone. What triad of symptoms should make you suspect renal cell carcinoma? Flank pain, hematuria, and flank mass. Remember, renal ultrasound or CT followed by biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosing this cancer. What vitamin deficiency is commonly seen in alcoholics presenting with confusion and potentially confabulation? Vitamin B1 or thiamine. What tumor marker is associated with medullary thyroid carcinoma? Calcitonin. What should you suspect in a patient with COPD who has an ABG with pH of 7.32, PCO2 of 42, and a bicarb of 29? Compensated respiratory acidosis. What should be suspected in a patient following a traumatic surgery resulting in significant blood loss, who later develops tachycardia and hypotension? <music> hypovolemic shock. Look to the hemoglobin to determine if hypovolemic shock is due to blood loss versus fluid loss. So if there's high or normal hemoglobin, suspect fluid loss, and if there's decreased hemoglobin, suspect blood loss. What is the most common location of a pressure ulcer? sacrum, and the most common cause is immobility. What tumor marker is associated with colorectal carcinoma? CEA. What postoperative complication in a patient with hepatic disease can be related to ascites? Wound dehiscence and hernias. In those with hepatic encephalopathy, clinical deterioration can occur from sedatives and analgesics. What is the definitive treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism? Parathyroidectomy. When is transurethral resection warranted for a patient with benign prostatic hyperplasia? After two failed voiding trials. What is the most common cause of an incisional hernia? Wound infection. What is the treatment for a patient with transient visual disturbances who is found to have carotid stenosis over 70%? Carotid endarterectomy is indicated for symptomatic carotid disease when over 70% stenosis occurs. If asymptomatic, carotid endarterectomy is indicated at 80% or more stenosis. What diagnosis is suggested by pneumatosis intestinalis on abdominal imaging? This is indicative of ischemic colitis as evidenced by gas in the bowel wall, which is a sign of ischemia. What is the most common cause of cellulitis? Staph aureus. What is the first-line treatment for a male patient with a painless, hard, fixed scrotal mass found to be a stage 1 seminoma? Orchiectomy. What should be suspected in a teenager with a history of menorrhagia who presents with pagophagia? colonicchia, and a low serum ferritin. Iron deficiency anemia. What signs and symptoms are suggestive of hypocalcemia? Tetany, muscle cramping, and perioral paresthesias or paresthesias of the finger. Don't forget your high yield signs like Chvostek's sign, which is that facial contraction with the facial nerve tapping, and Trousseau's sign, which is carpal spasm after compression. What diagnostic test should be done on a patient with inflammation and erosion of the gastric mucosa without response to standard GERD therapies? (music) EGD with biopsy, and you can do a urea breath test in the clinic for H. pylori if available. Also, remember the gold standard for a diagnosis of celiac disease is with EGD biopsy showing blunting of the microvilli, which also is called villus atrophy. What is the first-line therapy for coronary artery vasospasm in a patient without acute coronary syndrome? Nitrates during an acute event and CCBs like amlodipine or long-acting nitrates for long-term therapy is indicated for prinzmetal angina. What is the first-line treatment for a patient with an area of skin that is red, edematous, warm, and fluctuant with or without spontaneous strain and fever? IND, or incision and drainage, is first line for a cutaneous abscess. What is considered gold standard for diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism? (music) CT pulmonary angiography. If you have high clinical suspicion but want something less invasive than a CT pulmonary angiography, you can order a helical CT scan with contrast. What diagnosis should be suspected in a middle-aged adult male presenting with abdominal pain, diarrhea, and heartburn in the setting of elevated serum gastrin level despite PPIs and H2-blocking therapy? Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, and that is a gastrin-producing endocrine tumor. What presents with a history of menorrhagia, easy bleeding from the gums, and labs revealing a normal platelet count PT and APT with prolonged bleeding time? Von Willebrand disease, and that is the most common inherited bleeding disorder, which is autosomal dominant. What are some unique clinical characteristics of epididymitis? Gradual scrotal pain with a positive friend sign, and that is with pain relief when elevating the testicle, and then there will be a normal cremasteric reflex. What does post-op hyperglycemia increase risk for? Surgical site infection. When should you suspect Panko's syndrome? When a patient presents with Horner syndrome, which is ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis with shoulder pain from the lung cancer presenting at the apex. Don't confuse this with superior Vinicava syndrome, which is when that tumor pushes on the SVC, leading to facial arm swelling and redness. What should you suspect in a patient with multiple painful genital ulcers with painful inguinal lymphadenopathy? This is secondary to hemophilus sucreae. What is the best marker for nutritional status, especially in a patient with suspected pre-op malnutrition? Albumin or pre-albumin. Malnutrition prior to surgery increases risk of refeeding syndrome, which is an electrolyte derangement due to a huge intracellular shifting of electrolytes when normal diet is resumed, and this leads to hypophosphatemia, hypokalemia, and hypocalcemia. How was breast cancer definitively diagnosed? Core needle biopsy following a diagnostic mammography. What treatment should be given in a patient with a history of chronic liver disease and new onset mild cognitive impairment with asterixis? Lactulose, treatment of hepatic encephalopathy which results from a buildup of ammonia crossing that blood-brain barrier leads to cerebral dysfunction and can be acutely worsened by constipation. What are some associated complications from acute pancreatitis? (music) Pancreatic pseudocysts and infectious pancreatic necrosis. What should be suspected in a middle-aged patient with hearing loss, tinnitus, and vertigo? Acoustic neuroma, also known as vestibular schwannoma. What is the first-line pharmacotherapy for gastroparesis? Metoclopramide. Which location of an anal fissure should raise suspicion for Crohn's disease or another systemic pathology? Lateral. What pre-op antibiotics provide pseudomonas coverage in patients undergoing surgery to the small intestine? 3rd or 4th gen cephalosporins like septazidine or cefepime. What physical findings are associated with hypomagnesemia? Hyperreflexia, weakness, and risk of torsades. So you'll see that prolonged QT with a widened QRS and possible VTAC. What is the most common swallowed foreign body? A coin, which is usually seen in pediatric patients. Chest x-ray can show the location. Anterior view shows the flat side of the coin, then the coin is esophageal. If the lateral view shows the flat side of the coin, then suspect this is in the trachea. If a battery is swallowed and stuck in the esophagus, immediate endoscopic removal is warranted to prevent corrosive perforation. What is the initial management of choice in a patient with biochromocytoma that's not in an acute crisis? Phenoxybenzamine or phentolamine, which is the alpha blockade first, then do the beta blockade. You can use phenoxybenzamine for about 10 to 14 days prior to surgical resection of this adrenal neuroendocrine tumor. What confirms the diagnosis of achalasia? Esophageal manometry. Upper endoscopy should be performed prior to medical or surgical management as that is the gold standard for ruling out malignancy. What should a mild to moderate persistent asthmatic patient be given preoperatively to prevent an exacerbation of bronchospasms? Adding an ICS to the Saba preoperatively. What is the imaging modality of choice for evaluating for acute stroke? Non-contrast CT. This differentiates hemorrhagic stroke from an ischemic stroke. What is the most common cause of an upper GI bleed overall? Peptic ulcer disease, and that's usually due to H. pylori over NSAIDs. Suspect this in a patient with deep gnawing pain after eating if it's gastric or relieved with eating if it's duodenal. What is commonly used as treatment for neuropathic pain? Gabapentin and pregabalin. What lab findings are associated with DIC? Decreased plasma fibrinogen and platelets with an elevated D-dimer PT and PTT. What is the mainstay of symptomatic therapy for anorectal fistula? Surgery with the goal to eradicate the fistula while preserving fecal continence. What treatment should be considered in a patient with esophageal spasm? Calcium channel blockade. Which sign of acute appendicitis presents with right lower quadrant pain when passively flexing and rotating the hip? obturator sign. Don't confuse this with psoas sign, which is the right lower quadrant pain on hip extension, or rosting sign, which is the pain in the right lower quadrant when the left lower quadrant is palpated. What diagnosis should be suspected in a patient with obstipation and intolerance of PO following abdominal surgery? Postoperative paralytic ileus. What type of hernia travels under the inguinal ligament medial to the femoral vessels? When should patients with tobacco use disorder be encouraged to quit smoking preoperatively? About four weeks pre-op. What is usually the first manifestation of myasthenia gravis? Ocular symptoms like ptosis, diplopia, and blurred vision. What is the most common cause of hypothyroidism? Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroiditis. Suspect this in a patient with cold intolerance and weight gain, generalized weakness, periorbital edema, and fatigue. What is the difference between an incarcerated hernia and a strangulated hernia? Incarcerated hernias are irreducible. Strangulated hernias are incarcerated, but they also have signs and symptoms of ischemia or obstruction. So you should suspect that when there's overlying erythema, fever, abdominal distension, or even peritonitis. How can the pain of claudication be treated? With the PDE inhibitor, xylostazole, you should also be giving these patients platelet inhibitors like aspirin and plavix and statin therapies should be initiated and then revascularization should be considered. Beta blockers are contraindicated in patients with peripheral arterial disease because they can actually worsen the claudication. How can an Addisonian crisis be avoided in those with chronic steroid use undergoing surgery? Increase perioperative stress steroid administration five to 10-fold from their normal dose. Adrenals regulate cortisol and aldosterone, which can lead to that sodium and potassium balance and water retention. Removing this cortisol crutch or not accounting for that perioperative increase in cortisol from the stress can lead to a sudden drop that causes hypotension and hemodynamic instability. This concept also applies for those with adrenal insufficiency and Cushing's as well. What are the five W's of post-op fever? Wind, water, walking, wound, and wonder drugs. This rhyme helps you remember the acute causes of post-op fever in the first week in the order of their occurrence. Wind is one to two days post-op and that is usually from atelectasis or pneumonia. Water stands for the UTI that can be seen about three to five days post-op. Walking stands for the DVT or pulmonary embolism that can be seen about four to six days post-op. Wound stands for that SSI or surgical site infection about five to seven days or more post-op. And wonder drugs stands for things like drug fever, line infection transfusion reaction etc and that can be seven or more days after surgery the most common post-op complication has been largely attributed to atelectasis which should be suspected in patients with fever one to two days post-op increased work of breathing gather rails dullness to percussion and a chest x-ray positive for plate light hyper attenuations All right, that wraps up today's episode. As always, you can go to www.passpackpodcast.com for a full transcript and also all of the resources I use to make these questions. Please head over to Instagram and follow the pod at passpack underscore passport for near daily questions, quizzes on the stories and updates in healthcare. Don't forget you can get 10% off of a Smarty Pants subscription with the code passpack and 20% off of a subscription to Pygmonic with the code one word Passpack Passport. You can also find these links in the show notes and on the website. Please like, subscribe, review, comment, share, do all the things to help this podcast grow, and as always, safe travels. Thank you for joining me today on Passpack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, Passpack is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on Passpack do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.